morning, and welcome to Fiber Hooligan. For the next hour or so, I'd like to invite you to grab your cup of coffee, tea, or caffeine-free A&W Diet Root Beer, if that's your beverage of choice, and settle in for the 10th episode of The Return of Fiber Hooligan. For those of you who are wondering who the heck I am, I am your host, Benjamin Levesey. I'm also the CEO of XRX, home of, home of XRX Books and Stitches Expos. My pronouns are he and him, and I'm broadcasting live today from our offices in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. If you are tuning in for the first time, Fiber Hooligan is a podcast dedicated to bringing you interviews with the best of the fiber arts and makers world, including experts, business people, and designers in the crafts of knitting, crochet, spinning, dyeing, weaving, sewing, quilting, embroidery, as well as anything else I think is interesting. I want to welcome the new listeners today. Thank you very much for tuning in and trying out the show. I hope you enjoy it. And I can't wait for us to get to know each other a little better. And of course, I'd like to welcome back our Fiber Hooligan listeners who used to tune into the original show many years ago. Your ongoing support means so very much to me. Okay, got to get to this interview right away because I've been looking forward to this. My guest today is Anna Zilport. Anna is a talented designer, author, teacher, elder. Um, an elder in the knitting community, uh, she is an Anglican solitary who now lives on the seaside town of Rockland, Maine. According to a great quote that I found online in an interview she once gave, I had to pick it up because it's great, kind of the elevator speech of Anna. She, quote, she was born and reared in New York City, educated at Harvard, taught at MIT, fled from the maddening crowd's ignoble strife until I found myself in Big Stone Gap, Virginia, got religion, returned to my childhood love of knitting, and became a hermit. I, I you know, it's a, just a great little elevator synopsis of Anna, and we're going to get into some of that stuff in the interview. Um, at this point in Anna's career, she is retired. Uh, before she retired, she devoted her energy to teaching the living craft as opposed to just following directions. She has been called the anarchist knitter because of her book, Knitting for Anarchists, and the mad bobbler due to her love of three-dimensional stitches. Other books include Magnificent Mittens, Socks, Magnificent Mittens and Socks, Splendid Apparel, Socks for Sandals and Clogs, Fancy Feet, and 45 Fine and Fanciful Hats to Knit. Beyond her impressive career, Anna is one of the most interesting people I've ever met, and I'm so happy she could join us and be on the show today. Anna joins us this morning from her home in Big Stone Gap, Virginia. Good morning, Anna, and welcome to the show. Hi, I'm scarcely in Big Stone Gap. I'm in Rockland, Maine. Oh, I got it all wrong. Yes, you're in Rockland, Maine. I guess, and I just, I just said that. Many years ago. Many years ago. I, I apologize. Yes, you're. I, you know, it's one of those things. I, I shouldn't be doing notes at two o'clock in the morning, folks. This is what I'm telling you right now. Um, well, at least you know where you are. At least I know where I am, and that's that's remarkable. I sometimes forget. <laughs> Always well, I mean, and that's kind of my usual state anyway as well. So, uh, again, thank you for being on the show. Um, you know, we were, uh, we were uh, Elaine and I were just talking the other day. I, you know, I think we had originally scheduled you to be with us at United, and, of course, United didn't happen. And so, you know, we haven't really had a, a proper chance to say, I haven't had a proper chance to say, you know, thank you and, you know, you know we'll miss you from the teaching circuit. So this is a great opportunity. Um, you know, you did fantastic work, and so you know it's not going to be the same. But anyway, we'll have this episode, and I'm, we'll try to keep in touch with you as well. Um, let's jump right in. You never know so when and where I'll show up, too. 
Well, you never know. That's true. I mean, you could just stalk us. That's, that's it's it's yeah. it's perfectly fine if you do. Um, so let's just jump right in here because you've got a great story. Would you mind telling us your story? Well, I mean, <laughs> you you summed it up, or I summed it up in that quote, which I really don't remember, but I believe I said it. Uh, yeah, I was, but it's it's really two lives. I've been at. I'm so old, I've had enough time to live two lives. Uh, because I was born in a different age, you know. I was born in the Second World War. And, uh, as I said, grew up in New York City and in a highly intellectual, uh, academic-type and artistic-type family. Uh, and there was really no question of what women's role was and what men's role was, except that I was smart and encouraged and uh, ended up uh, in academia, which I loved. I loved school. I mean, home was disastrous. Most people's homes are disastrous. And uh, I loved being in school. I loved learning. And uh, and I ended up in academia. And, and my field was literature, comparative literature. Um, and there I've, I, you know, learned that Stories create meaning, which I mean, it's useful later on. Um, and I love to teach. Teaching was teaching is an interesting topic because when I was in high school, I had a wonderful English teacher, but I did have this awful epiphany one day of how awful it was that teachers taught students to grow up to be teachers, to teach students, to grow up to be teachers, to teach students. And it just seemed deadly, and, and I never wanted to be a teacher. Uh, and then when I was in college, I learned Russian. And in it's a entirely different vision of what teaching is about in the language itself, because in Russian, to teach and to learn is the same word. But the learning, it's reflexive. It's like if you do this or this happens to yourself. And teaching, you teach students. You teach students to the material. In English, you teach material to students. And so it's like a mama bird, you chew it up and you stuff it in. But this other approach where you, there's something you love and you want to share it. And somebody else who's drawn to it is wants to learn it too, and and you approach it together, and somehow the material stays inviolate, and what you bring to it, and what you take out of it, and what you do with it is something very different. And it to me, it does not matter whether I'm teaching knitting or whether I'm teaching King Lear. You know, it's their teaching is with what I do. I, or what I feel I do more than anything else. And it is, by the way, why I'm really sad to not be able to do stitches any longer. And, you know, that's just because I'm old and decrepit and, you know, I have to quit. But uh, but it really is the – what I like least about being aged is is having to give up teaching. And if anybody wants to come see me in Rockland I and – Knitting with me, I would be happy to see them. So there. Well, we might have anyway, to just wrap, uh, put anyway, a, put a stitches in rock. That was half yep. of my life. But then I was at MIT 
during the Vietnam War. And by the time it was over, I had really lost faith with secular life. I, I just couldn't, could not hack it. Uh, and uh, at the same time, the women's movement had started up. And I realized when we had women coming into the department, other than myself, and uh, they wanted to be men, you know, they wanted to be professors, they wanted the career, they wanted the future. And they were talking about women's roles, which I knew very well. My work was raising children and running a household. And I taught for pleasure, for fun. Um, but they wanted they wanted a career and I wanted to know what women's life was like without careers. And my colleagues' wives were very hostile to me and I didn't understand why. But I didn't have women friends, really. And I had a lot of male friends. I was really very male-identified in that culture that I grew up in. Uh, so... So I decided to find out what women's life was like, and I didn't know, you know, I thought, well, women made quilts. I will make quilts. I like handwork. And I started making quilts. This was before they were popular. They were just just starting up that people started, you know, buying fabric to make quilts. Uh, and it was fascinating. I mean, I learned so much just doing it, just making quilts. I learned about myself. I learned about women's thinking I learned about um I learned about even things that I'd been teaching uh I wanted to want to I wanted to know how you drafted a diamond for all these diamond patterns these uh, uh lone star quilts and then all the other ones and I couldn't figure out how to draft that pattern and I I had all my protractors and uh straight edges and, you know, implements. And I suddenly, the epiphany, the women who made those quilts had none of these things. What they had was a flat iron and a piece of cloth. And they could pull the string, the warp and the weft on the cloth and get a corner. They could make a square. They could fold it and press it and open it and cut the, cut the pieces to the folds made and that's where the quilts came from and it was like you know like eyes opening a different way of doing it because of the material you have and that immediately reflected on I've been teaching a tradition at that time in at MIT and and always you say note that the columns of the Acropolis looks as though they're straight, even though they're tall, so tall that the perspective would normally make them look sloped. And that feeling that the Greeks were such great mathematicians, they figured this out and whatnot. And I suddenly realized, no, they didn't. They opened their eyes and they looked and they made them look straight. That's how they did it. You know, It wasn't that complicated mathematical figuring. It was fascinating to me, you know, all of these things that I learned, making quilts. Uh, and anyway, I was I was doing a number of things. I was fighting with St. Augustine, uh, who I also had been teaching. 
And I was making quilts, and my whole life was falling into pieces and lots of pieces. And I ended up in Big Stone Gap, as I said. And again, I went to Big Stone Gap because I did. I knew somebody else who had gone to Big Stone Gap. I knew nothing about what it was. But I, when I went to visit, I found there was something I had to learn that I didn't already know. When you live in Cambridge, Massachusetts, first of all, you know everything. And secondly, everybody knows the same thing. And you live as a living in an echo chamber, you know. Uh, and Big Stone Gap was totally unintellectual, virtually illiterate, and uh, a society that functioned with prayer, which was something I knew nothing about, having been brought up in a totally secular environment, and having lived in academia, which was a totally secular environment. And it was a fascinating difference in how this society worked with prayer. And that's how I you know, moved into uh, Christianity, into, the, into religion, into the story, the story that can give meaning to your life or with which you can live or that makes sense, or any number of things. So that was the journey there, and it was, <laughs> it was really marvelous. I was baptized. I decided I went to this, there was this East Stone Methodist Church, and there was, a, it was, the pastor was a uh, real, uh, a real redneck. Uh, he's, he called every woman honey, and he sniggered, and, and he was, <laughs> But he was a man of God. He preached the word. One day he said, stopped in the middle of a sermon and said, I, I hear you say preacher. That sounds like communism. I can't help it. It's the word. And so he was, he was really quite, quite wonderful. Well, he was preaching about um, baptism as a new life, starting over. And I said, that's what I need. I need a clear button. I need to start fresh. And so I decided to be baptized. I didn't know what that was about. And I was staying at this um, <laughs> ecumenical charismatic community, uh, which was kind of run by Mer Mother Mary Catherine, who had been the superior of the Glen Mary nuns before they dissolved. Uh, and I was to be baptized one Sunday afternoon during a swimming party at Oscar Poole's pool. Oscar Poole was a dear member of the congregation. He was hosting a party for um, teenagers that afternoon, and we were going to stop in the middle of it and have a baptism. <laughs> you know, somehow the background I came from, this Harvard high-class um, you know, the very opposite of Oscar Poole's pool, have a baptism in the middle of a uh, of a teenage swimming party. It was wonderful. It was just perfect. It was, you know, the ideal way of doing it. I think it um, sounds great. It was great. It was, it was uh, I don't know, it was perfect. 
Yeah, so that's that's how I started out, and it kind of basically a new life, and uh, uh, and it led ultimately to the uh, Episcopal Church sort of recognizes a calling of uh, hermits. They uh, they've always been Christian hermits, and I clearly was happier being a hermit than anything else, uh, and. It was kind of like a place that I could hang on to the world, that I belonged to, belonged to something, and I could uh, go my own kind of nutty way, and I did. And uh, at that, then I got back into knitting. Well, I got back into knitting because I had to make a living. Hermits live by the work of their hands, and that was suitable. Uh, and I'd been make, I had, as I said, been making quilts. I went up to New York for a year to run a shelter for street kids and there was no room to lay out a quilt and that sent me back to knitting and at that time I think it was in 86 or something like that uh, there were two knitting stores in all of New York two yarn stores and they didn't even bother with double pointed needles because they couldn't, who made socks you know and um I remember telling one of them that socks were coming back and they should watch for them. Uh, and so I got back into knitting. And I just by chance got um, Anatolian knitting from Meg Swanson, uh, Schoolhouse Press. And I didn't, I didn't know what Anatolia was. Uh, but when I got this book of Turkish knitting patterns, I, it was just wonderful and I started working with them and my hands loved doing them you know and it was just a uh, a kind of whole new life of, of knitting and I thought they should be more available but you know the more awake more people should know of them than just came from this little Turkish book and um, I couldn't get anybody interested in doing the work uh, to you know the research and whatnot and so finally, I just made, made my first sock book, uh, which was Fancy Feet, just to get these Turkish patterns out into the world, um, which was how XRX was just starting doing these expos, and that's what drew Elaine to notice me, I think, was Fancy Feet, and um, there we're off, and the rest is... You know, I've been XRX identified ever since, I think. I mean, <laughs> I've identified myself with it. I feel, you know, like uh, sort of an adjunct to the family. I feel definitely like part of the crew. <laughs> well, you've always been considered yeah. part of the crew. I mean, you know, when I, I'm, I'm, it's, it's funny as we're speaking here, Lexi's texting me because uh, he's listening to the show. And, uh, you know. He's uh, well. I mean, you're even working with him on his new venture, which has nothing to do with the fiber arts world. Right, right. Well, you know, Alexei invented me. He he, he did a did a, <laughs> a spread on me because they were putting out a, a, a mitten book to begin with, and uh, uh, so yeah. Well, I said I'd write a forward for his book because I thought, well, he invented me. I'll return the favor. Sure. <laughs> yes. Sure. Sure. Well, you know, and again, he could re- he could use a little reinventing. You know, I'm I'll, you know I'm sure I'll hear about that. Reinventing 
very good thing to do. I mean, now I've got to reinvent myself as a an old crone, and you know it's very hard <laughs> because you you know I see I moved up to Maine with a sense of one more life to live. It may be short, but you know I've got a life to live, and I have to figure out what it is, and uh, it's it makes life exciting. Constantly reinventing. Well, it's it's probably just good for all of us. Uh, I I wanted to back up and talk about something you had said before. Mm-hmm. You know, you you you've done a number of books. A lot of people talk about you being you know the, the anarchist knitter because of knitting for anarchists, and yeah. and I think a lot of people are very curious about that. But can you can you t- because I know that that's and that's part of your philosophy too. You know, the living art. Can can yeah. we talk about that book a little bit? Sure, sure, because that's the book that I most identify with. And actually, it was it was prompted by Elaine, because she kept saying I ought to write about knitting. And uh, so I started thinking, well, what would I write about knitting? And what I, you know, what I feel very strongly, in fact, is that this craft, which is a really, a fairly modern craft, um, 15th century, it came in, well, I mean, it came into the Middle East, uh, 7th, 8th, 9th century, but it's not one of the ancient, you know, like weaving. Um, and it hasn't had, it's just been, it's flourished more in modern times than it ever has before. But it was always an oral craft. It was part of women's life. Women did not read and write. Um, it used the non-literate adult mind in its structure, in, in what it did. And it's changing. Its patterns used to pass by artifacts. You know, the first, the first socks passed up the Volga to the north, and they were taken apart by the Latvians, Lithuanians, and whatnot, who figured out how to make those patterns into mittens. And you can, you can watch them, and then you can watch patterns move from east to west over to uh, the, the British Isles and down through the islands. And you can get a whole history of a, of a craft growing and moving. And now we have, it's become literate. And we're kind of bound to it. We're bound to patterns. We're bound to books. We're bound to directions. And those have a great advantage in that we can use all the techniques that all the different people have worked out for different, and that have ended up in different patterns, different ethnicities, different uh, designs. Uh, And we have, we can use it we can use it all. It's like fusion music, you know. It brings everything together, and and makes a kind of richness that it's never had before. But at the same time, it has limitations. It has enormous limitations, because people learn to follow directions, and they learn to do it this way. A lot of the stitches in knitting, a lot of the patterns have developed from the different ways in which people make stitches, which develops different patterns. And then you're told you have to do it this way. Well, you have to do it this way because the directions have to be written 
so that everybody can follow them. So everybody has to do it one way. And I feel that's deadly to the life of the craft. It makes knitters into producers instead of knitters, instead of craft people. It's, it's teaching English to teach yeah. English to teach English, right? Right, right. It ties it down. It ties it down. It limits it. And, you know, even I have nothing against, God knows I have nothing against people using patterns and following patterns. I write patterns, after all. Uh, and, and there's a great pleasure in just following someone else's pattern and not, you know, when you don't have to think. You don't doing it to think. I mean, when I was teaching at uh, the university, I used to sew all my clothes, and I did a lot of sewing. And I loved just following the pattern exactly. I didn't have to think. It, it wasn't my work, you know? So it's not as I'm against following patterns in any particular way, but to know what you're doing, to understand your craft, to uh, know what the stitches do, even so that you can make a mistake so that you can fix it, you know, so you know what you've done. You drop the stitch down, you have to pick it up. And uh, the, it, it enriches one's life to know and to understand one's craft. You, you become not just a producer, but a participant in the making of something. Uh, so that was, that's knitting the, uh, the for anarchists. And anarchists, I have a great fondness for uh, the, the labor movements of the 20s and 30s, you know, which is our history, which has almost been read out of history. Uh, and anar- the anarchists, the Wobblies, were, were a very big part of that. Uh, I, I am doing a whole lot of elliptical talk here, but... In the 70s in Cambridge, once Frank Cedarval, who was an old wobbly rabble-rouser, came up to Boston, uh, and he was sitting on my front steps talking, and he was talking about seeing it happen. This was the 60s. This was the heart of the 60s. And seeing, and he was talking about the past and how, how the labor movement, how it was it was happening, and then the world World War came, and nationalism took over. And he said, "You know, we said it was a capitalist war, and but it took over and it killed the movement, and it's starting again." He said, "I how I wish I could live the next twenty years and see it happen." And I've so often thought, I'm so glad he couldn't live the next twenty years because it didn't happen. It went backwards, you know. But uh, here we are again, right now, with a sense of however horrendous this modern, you know, turmoil is. Still, there's some hope that it's happening. Yeah, that this change, this, this change of of uh, power from the top down, the big man, the powerful ruler. The, the king who knows everything, you know, who is the divine right of kings, and it's changing, it's turning, you know, it's the, uh, and it's turning in, the, in science and the discovery of, and the working out of evolution and how one le- 
change comes from below, small bits, and uh, it gives one hope. I mean, these are, it doesn't make these not terrible times and terrible for many people. But overall, uh, I have that same sense. I'm, I'm not sure I'd say with Frank Cedarval that I wish I could live the next 20 years and see it happen because it may take longer than it'll take longer than that. But uh, but I have a I do have a feeling that uh, it's happening. You know, good things are in the woods. I guess I keep thinking to myself. <clears throat> we've talked about this before. Um, that it has to happen, you know, that it's this mm-hmm. feeling that it's going to happen has to be also followed up with our commitment to make it happen and and to be mm-hmm. you know, impatient enough to continue to push, but patient enough to realize that it might not happen in, well, my lifetime, you know. Yeah, well, it's good to know history. You know, it's good to know and to see that changes have come, but they don't come straight on. They come, you know, two steps forward, one step back. You know, they, they keep... It's like breathing it out and breathing in. You know, there, the revolutions, the, the American Revolution may have been the first, but then there was the uh, French, and they that failed, you know, back into the Third Empire, and then you had the uprisings in forty-eight in nineteen in eighteen forty-eight, you know, and and it kept moving, you know, uh, but the changes have come. We do not, and well. There still is a celebrity culture, you know. There's still people who want some something, some object of human being to be the one to admire. But that sense of we don't have uh, divine right of kings. We don't even have divine right of corporations. We we're, we're fighting it, you know. Uh, yeah. We're fighting just power from above. Uh, to uh, you know, and and looking for a more, we'd like to call it humane world. We'd like to become more humane uh, as a species. We'd like to become more humane. And after all, they, during the no, when there was the Second World War, there were very few conscientious objectors, <laughs> but there were some. And now when the Iraq war came up, all over the world, there were protests against it. And you don't go to war these days with that great sense of a whole nation uh, rising up with absolute conviction that they're the good guys and the others are the bad guys and we have to kill each other, therefore, you know. It's... it's, uh, doesn't feel that way any longer. It's changing. Not the worst idea. Not the worst thing for people to be taking a second look and rather than trusting <clears throat> our elected officials. <clears throat> yeah. One of the things that you yeah. said earlier, which we were talking about change, I'd love to touch back, base back on. Um, when you were with us at Stitches, you once did a program called uh, Knitting a Life in Wild Times. and And you made some observations about traditional men's roles and women's roles as you know, it relates to life as well as the craft uh, that we're we're both in. Would you talk a little bit about that, please? Well, yeah, because of course that's one of the really, really current events. And it's one of the great divisions in, in generations now I see 
Um, because when I was growing up, it was still it was a, there were there were cracks in the in the system, but there was still very much a sense of what women did and what men did, and they were different. Uh, and now, even nowadays, nowadays it's separated from um, biology, you know, just from from sexual organs, which it was then. You know, you had one set, you were you female, and you had the other set, you were male. And if you were male, you were expected to do, and if you were female, you were expected to do. And that has changed. That that has definitely changed. But we still talk about gender, and uh, I'm. I'm glad to know because as I have, you know, been a student of life and time um, and through my life, it seems to me that men's work has always been basically war and commerce. It's always had this a competitive aspect and an energetic outreach aspect, something new, something and risk-taking and daring. You know, you go off and kill dragons. Uh, that's what men do. And women's work has always been practical and conservative and mm, careful. We raise children. We raise the next generation. We bear the next generation. And we, you know, women's work has therefore been dealing with uh, birthing the young and burying the dead and feeding in between and clothing uh, and and all these these things that are stable and protective and careful and it seems to be very much what the world needs right now um, running against that is the is the whole course of the Industrial Revolution where men's work, the commerce, began to absorb all of women's work. It started with the spinning jenny. Now, spinning is one of the women's work which is the most soothing, the most meditative, the most pleasing. And I think the women's movement started right there. You take spinning away from women and they're going to get a lot edgier and anxious, more anxious, you know. But it moved into commerce. It was the first commercial machine. And one thing after another moved into commerce until now. Childcare is a a profession and a job. It's not something that happens in the home or among women or among generations. It It's part of the commercial world. But of course, it's nothing changes solidly. It's part of a certain commercial world and not another commercial world. There, you know, we we're in a time of enormous fluidity and change, and they're all going on at once. Uh, but of course, women's work, which was onerous and never-ending, but always there was that impulse to do the necessary make it beautiful to make it beautiful and that's where right from the get go it seems to me women were always engaged you know the spinning but you wanted to make it lovely 
and you wanted to make it colored and you wanted to do beautiful things with it. Uh, and that's, I think, that desire for beauty is one thing which is not paid enough attention to. You know, it's turned into art and creativity and 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 almost social status because of certain talents rather than the fact that one wants the beauty it may be in the eye of the beholder but that the beholder should be beholding it that ugliness there's enough ugliness in life there's enough pain and there's enough suffering that there's an enormous amount of beauty in the world in living and to to nurture it to nourish it seems to be Perhaps more, for me, the most worthwhile thing around, as well as to teach it, you know, to, to, to encourage it, that it's, um, it's part of the necessary. It's not what you, you buy, you know, ugly machinery that what does the work and then try to put an antimacassar on it to make it beautiful, you know. No, you try to make the work things you work with beautiful, try to make your tools beautiful, even. I, doubled, I remember you telling the story, and I'm, I'm so glad you told it again, because, you know, really, if you if you think about it and you break that down, the, those rules were war and commerce, and then, for women, essentially everything else. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, Tolstoy said that uh, women are more beautiful than men, that's because they do all the work. <laughs> <laughs> um, my uh, good friend Libby has a bag that I love. It says the future is female. Um, I should get one of those bags for myself. So I remember I had another conversation with you. I'd, I'd like to, to talk to you about because it was a great conversation and it kind of like opened my eyes. It's something I hadn't thought about before. You and I were sitting in a bar in Atlanta and uh, we were talking about um, – well, a, a, a bunch of people, let's we'll say that, that were just miserable. And um, you shared some insight with me. Do you remember that insight? Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. Would well, you mind sharing it with our listeners? Because sure. this is good. You know, I, I, have, I, have, I have looked for epiphanies at different ages in my life. In fact. Uh, it started, you know, when I was 30. I turned 30, and uh, everyone was you know, 30 was the age. You didn't trust anybody who was over. And and my, my 30th birthday epiphany was uh, I've been trying all, all my life to do what is expected of me, and now I'm in an age where people have to do what I expect of them, you know. It was a great epiphany at 30. But my, so my uh, 50-year-old epiphany was that I was a post-adult, that an adult is very largely a figment of a child's imagination and you try to live up to it and you never quite can. And, but, and the child never imagined being 50. Uh, and so you're free. You're free from your own expectations of yourself and you can do anything you want. That was 50. But... 80 was when I realized that by the time you're old, 
you have really caught on to the fact that nothing makes you so unhappy as thinking about yourself. And anytime you're caught thinking about yourself, you start getting miserable. And this is exactly why young people are so unhappy. Because that's been a mystery, you know, they've got everything. But it's because their job is to think about themselves. And, you know, to learn who they are and whatnot. I mean, and the corollary to that, which I'm, it is simply that, you know, there's an end run of the devil when you're uh, old because you start creaking and things start breaking down and whatnot, and you start being kind of forced to pay attention. You know, to, to, to pay attention to yourself again. And it's really worth standing against. It's really worth just refusing to do. Uh, and I don't think people really, I mean, certainly in, the, in a culture that says self-realization is everything, uh, it seems to go against the grain. But it's very practical, very practical. Women are practical. Well, I just remember hearing it when you when you explained it to me like that, and I, I just it was like somebody hit me in the head and went, "Well, of course, that makes perfect sense." <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you've done that many cool. times. I remember, I remember I had a conversation with you um, about probably about five years ago, and we won't go into it right now, just because I know there's a lot of my listeners that love social media. But you 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 sort of went off on your thoughts about social media. And I won't ask you to repeat them here because that's a controversial issue. But still, I, every single time you've given me advice or, or talked on a subject, I've just found myself absolutely captivated and thinking, aha, wow, that's so right on, you know. So what was uh, there was another thing I wanted to uh, – I'm sorry, go ahead, Anna. I'm just wondering, what was it that, that I was talking about that you that we, we can't talk about? Well, we, we were talking about social media. Oh, social media. Oh, oh, I have, well, that's, you know, that's a place where I just, I just, you know, I'm out of date. I'm simply out of date. I can't do it, you know, and I realized finally, you know, that I, probably five years ago I was taught, I was railing in some ways, and now it's, it's normal life. You can't grow up without it. And, uh. I'm out of it, you know. I, I'm just I can't deal with it. I mean, here I am on this this you know telephone call social media uh, show. Let's call it a show, you know. And but uh, yeah, it's I belong to a different age. I am a relic of a bygone age. That's what I am. Uh, I'm you know scarcely even a historical resource because. I go back so far. <laughs> um, okay, what, what else? You, there was something else you wanted to talk about. No, no, I was, I was going to say, we, one of the things we haven't talked about, and I, I believe it's worth mentioning, is your yeah. your your moniker of being the mad bobbler. Okay, so <laughs> it sounds to me like from talking to your friends that you deserve this moniker. And uh, would you like to explain what the mad bobbler is and why you've been named that? <laughs> I, I mean, I like to put bobbles on everything, and I mean, I, I like, I like expressions. I like to, in knitting, you, you're taking a one-dimensional object, and you're turning it into a three, a two-dimensional object. You're taking this string, and you're making it into a square. 
okay? And you can make it into a three-dimensional object. Now, I don't, I don't mean, you know, you, you can always make something, you can make two-dimensional objects into three-dimensional objects, but in and of itself, well, the bobble is, is a three-dimensional object made from this one-dimensional object, this piece of string, and it just tickles me that it's that. And, and I like, you know, I, I like all the three-dimensional objects that, you, that knitting comfortably does, does gracefully. Uh, raise, you know, raising up knit stitches on a pearl ground, and you can and you get different shapes. Uh, and you didn't know bobbles is not all you get. My most recent discovery, which isn't quite in the in the bobble category, except how you make it, it is, um, is uh, I cord fringe. It's one of these things I love teaching because people don't know how to do it, so that it's fun to do. Because to do, you know, for 50 pieces of I-cord would be a big drag. It would not be fun, except that you can do them all together. And and it is fun. Somebody put a, I told me that somebody else put a video out about how to do it. So I don't have to, I don't have to feel that I'm the only one who can tell tell anyone how to do that. Uh, but really, there's nothing more to it than that. There was the uh, kind of crucial moment when uh, Tina Newton of uh, uh, oh, Blue Moon word this Blue Moon, yeah. Fiber Arts uh, uh, said she didn't like bobbles. I've made something for her and she said no, she didn't like it. She didn't like bobbles. And then I made her a sweater and the only thing I could I was just driven to make this sweater that was just full of bobbles. You know, it was a bobble pattern. And um, and she loved it, and you know it was, it was sort of the success of the bobble against the bobble hater. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's nothing there's nothing of any great significance in it. Uh, <coughs> it's maybe maybe the one mathematical aspect of knitting that kind of tickles me is that one dimension growing to three. I guess we saw a little bit of that too in your in your in your book um uh with embellishments um yeah mm-hmm. uh, splendid apparel um we we did see some three dimensional work in that too i guess that so that that's kind of not a bobble but definitely texture yeah texture texture yeah uh yeah yeah well certainly yeah. texture these 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 uh uh, wonderful textures. Well, that's the you know the uh, Japanese knitting that uh, Gail Rome is bringing in so much now is uh, full of it, and it's I think it's great fun. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, we're coming down close to the uh, the end of the show here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been wonderful, and uh, I, I wanted to make sure: is there anything that that uh, we haven't talked about you that think we should have talked about by now? Oh, goodness. I don't think so. Okay. That's, that's a fine answer. So I'll put you on the spot uh, here. Okay. So in this troubled time, and I like to ask people this, especially people like you who I know are wise and actually have some words of wisdom, any wisdom you can uh, 
impart to me and maybe our listeners who are, you know, worried about the future, other than it's fine to be worried? Oh, uh, this is, this is, I think a, a, a broader perspective is always helpful, especially when, you know, when things look so dismal right at hand. The best thing to do is to step back and try and look at a broader perspective. Uh, if necessary, just go out at night and look at the stars. Uh, I guess I find, yeah, I don't know, I don't know any other advice to to give. These are troubled times. They are going to be troubled times. Times have always been troubled. Life, you know, life is not pleasant. It is not easy. It is not. It doesn't last forever. Don't worry about it. It. You know, you don't have to suffer forever. Uh, but it's also very beautiful. And you, the less you think about yourself and the more you think about how to make things beautiful, the better off you'll be. There. See, that's, that's perfect. You brought it all together there. It was good. <laughs> so um, okay. I, I, I wanted to thank you again for your time. Um, and uh, uh, we're going to wrap up here now. And I wanted to wish you happy retirement, um, even though we're probably not going to let you go completely from our world yet. And uh, and, and to wish you just a great week. And, and, I, and I hope you have a, you know, a spectacular week. Well, thanks, Ben. It's been a pleasure talking to you and to whoever right. else is there. Okay. All right. You take care of yourself and have a, have a, have a nice day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Anna Zilborg, one of the most interesting people I think I have ever met, and I'm so pleased she could join us on the show today. Uh, we talked about some of Anna's books and, um, and, and and some other things on the show today, and I will make sure that I put the links to some of those resources up on the show notes, and those show notes should be up on FiberHooligan.com probably in the next day or two. Next Monday, <clears throat> my guest will be Heavenly Bresser. Um, Heavenly Bresser is a self-taught, well-rounded fiber artist from Chicago. She has over 10 years of experience with crochet and knitting, but also loves dyeing fibers, hand spinning, weaving, and repairing spinning wheels. Working from fleece to project is one of her favorite things to do. Her passion for fiber arts and the joy in seeing others grow in the craft is part of her motivation as an instructor. Heavenly's goal is to uplift, inspire, and encourage those around her and challenge them to think outside the box and to do things they'd never imagined could be done. Outside of her fiber adventures, her time is spent caring for her husband, two boys, and boys and Morky, and a Morky named Samson. Sam, yes, yeah, Samson. Um, as you all know, if this sounds familiar, Heavenly was on the show uh, not so long ago. Uh, it was not the show that we originally planned, but uh, given current events, rather than cancel, uh, Heavenly decided to jump in and, and speak uh, to the issues of the day, and I'm, I'm thankful that she would, I'm thankful she did that. But we never really did get a chance to have a show for her and talk about, you know, what she does and, uh, you know, the, the various things that she's up to and, and her skills. So I wanted to make sure we had a makeup episode. So I, I hope you'll join us 
uh, next week. Tune in again to hear from this very gracious and talented artist. I also want to make sure that you know that I'm eager to hear from you. Uh, you can email me questions, recommendations, critiques, and feedback at fiberhooligan at gmail.com. And that includes suggestions for guests or cool things you'd like me to highlight in the show. I don't promise to respond to every email or message, but I do promise to do my best to read them all. If you ask a really great question or have an inspired idea, I may even read your email on the podcast. I'd like to thank Anna for being on the show today. I'd like to thank the XRX and Stitches crew for encouraging me to start this podcast up again. I'd like to thank my partners and family, David, Elaine, and Alexis, for their support. I'd especially like to thank my dear wife, Krista, for always being believing in me. I'd like to thank Libby Butler-Gluck for all of her encouragement and help. <laughs> and today I'd like to send out an extra shout-out to uh, my friend Betsy Hirschberg. Uh, we had a chance to catch up the other night, and it was really a pleasure. And, of course, I'd like to thank all of you for listening. Well, that's our show, Fiber Hooligans. As we slide on out of here today, I'd like to wish you all a glorious week. Remember, the only thing better than being creative is being kind to each other. The good news, we can do both. Thank you for spending this time with us. I hope you'll join me and my special guest, Heavenly Bresser, next week on another edition of Fiber Hooligans.